I noticed that you could have gotten really mad at your sister when she made that comment, but you didn't. Like, that's huge. And I noticed. And just make it a goal, especially if you're in a struggle time with your kids. Like, make it a goal to find one thing each day that you know you can say to them that night that you noticed. Welcome to the Parenting ADHD Podcast, where I share insights and strategies on raising kids with ADHD straight from the trenches. I'm your host, Penny Williams. I'm a parenting coach, author, ADHD-aholic, and mindset mama, honored to guide you on the journey of raising your atypical kid. Let's get started. Welcome back to the Parenting ADHD Podcast. I'm so excited today to be talking to Deborah Farmer Chris, who is the author of I Love You All the Time and a couple of other children's books. Thanks for being here, Deborah. I'm so excited to have this conversation with you. Will you start just by introducing yourself to our listeners, let everyone know who you are and what you do? Sure. Thanks for having me. My name's Deborah Farmer Chris. And in addition to writing picture books, I am a parent educator. I'm a parenting columnist for PBS Kids. I write about education for NPR's MindShift and other outlets such as the Washington Post. And mostly I just, because I am the mom of two kids, I love finding all the nuggets of wisdom I can that helps me and Mm -hmm. to try to pass them along to help other people. Yeah, good work. Super important work. Let's start, I think, I just want to tell everyone what really struck me when I discovered your work. I was reading that PBS Kids article about loving your kids just the way they are and that our kids are lovable. And what struck me was that you told your daughter, I love you when you're mad. And it was something that I've never thought to do as a parent, to take those really hard moments and remind our kids that we still love them, that it's okay to have these feelings. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I said, oh my gosh, I have to have her on the podcast. We have to talk about this more. We have to share this idea because it is so difficult as parents of neurodivergent kids to counterbalance all those negative messages. We're trying so hard to instill so many positive messages and it can be really challenging to sort of find those easy times for that, right? When things are going super great. right? And what I love about what you're doing is you're taking that struggle and you're still reminding them that there's good, that there's love, even when things are hard. Mm-hmm. Using that time is so amazing. Yeah, that was the inception. That was the core impetus for this book. My daughter was about three and she had one of those epic tantrums that we all know so well Mm -hmm. as parents where just nothing was helping, right? I was trying all the things in my toolkit and she wasn't having it. Probably didn't help. I think it was shortly after my my son was born. So, you know, that's really discombobulating for kids. And finally, I just, I scooped her up and I put her on my lap in the rocking chair. And really in almost a moment of desperation, I, I looked at her and I said, you know, I really love you when you're mad. And she stopped crying and she looked at me (laughs) like I was nuts. And so I continued. I I said, you know, I love you when you're happy. I love you when you're sad. I love you when you're scared. I love you when you're mad. I love you all the time. 
And that just kind of came out. It was, you know, I don't know what type of thing I was channeling, but it became the mantra that I would say to my kids every night before Mm -hmm. bed. And so when my son was older, I'd say it to him too. And, you know, I was so fascinated when he turned about four because he would begin to really kind of question that. Now, you know, he's my spirited child. And, (laughs) you know, so he would say things like, what if I chopped down all the trees in the backyard? Would you still love me? And I said, I'll be sad about the trees, but of course I would still love you. And, And he would kind of just push these limits. And I could see that as much as it was kind of funny, he was also really asking me, are there limits here? Yeah. And so a few years after that, when I guess, well, he was about four and my daughter was just a little older, I sat down to write this book. And the refrain is, I love you all the time. And, you know, I kind of go through those daily moments where, you know, I love you when you make a mess and when you clean it up. My favorite, because it's a moment of real stress in our household and many households, is those kind of the morning rush times, right? When mm-hmm. you have your kid who cannot find anything yep. for their backpack and you're running late. And so, you know, the line goes, I, I love you when we're running late. We rush and dash and scamper. I love you when you find your shoes behind the laundry hamper. <laughs> I love you all the time. And, you know, because my son can't find his shoes any yep. morning. And they are in the most random places. Totally relatable. Yeah. And I've been reading this book to just a ton of preschool and kindergarten classes in the last month. And I pause before that and say, how many of your families sometimes have big emotions in the morning? People are tired or cranky and every hand goes up. Mm-hmm. And so we read that and they laugh, but it's just that sense of we may have these cranky, stressful moments, but the love is constant. And I think that's a message that we didn't always necessarily feel as kids. I feel like parents of our generation was almost a sense of some feelings weren't allowed or, you know, even if our parents felt it, we may not have felt it. And I just think being so explicit about the fact that there are going to be these up and down days and up and down moments, but the love is constant. Because especially for our neurodiverse kids, beyond their interactions with us, they're hearing from their classmates and their teachers, sit down, pay attention, where's your work? I can't believe. And I kind of call it like the death by a thousand paper cuts, right? Yeah. They're getting so much feedback that while it may not be malicious, it's just these subtle things that are reminding them, oh, oh, I'm a little different. I, why isn't my brain working this way? And so we have to really consciously counteract that. Yeah. And so, you know, when I was, I was writing these books, I was writing it for my kids, but, you know, I was a teacher for 20 years. I'm also writing it for that kid who's going to be losing their shoes every single morning. Mm-hmm. And my love is with you every single morning as we find our shoes together, even when I get cranky about it, you yeah. know, when I'm working on it as a parent. I love it. I love it so much. And what I'm hearing is that you're sort of normalizing imperfection in the story. You're saying, yes. yeah, sometimes we lose our shoes, but it's okay. Right. We all do that, Right. Yeah, I love you when you stay awake and when you nap, right? When you think about parents who's tired and say, why aren't you falling asleep, right? It's like all these things that are pushing our buttons, but it's just that reminder, I think, for parents too, that, you know, we have to make the implicit explicit, meaning we know we love our kids all the time, Mm -hmm. but we have to be explicit about it because we can't just assume, you know, that they're going to, to intuit it from us. Um, And I I really am a big believer that we have to say it out loud, just like we have to for our kids who are neurodiverse, really scaffold, okay, what does it look like to clean up your room, right? We're going to take a baby step at a time. We can't Mm -hmm. just assume they're going to know how to do it. 
that we can't just assume that they know in that moment when we are feeling a little cranky that that's our emotional reaction, perhaps, but that has no bearing on our deep, deep love for them. Yeah, and that's so powerful. It's so powerful to really express it. And and kids who are neurodivergent often struggle with reading between the lines, right? Reading right. facial expression, tone of voice. So they're not going to necessarily get that you're smiling at them or winking at them, even though it's a frustrating situation because you can't find the other shoe, right? And so being very explicit with our kids especially is so important. Yeah, and and this is what, you know, kind of makes them light up. And so, you know, Mm -hmm. when I was thinking about like, one of the reasons I love my publisher, Free Spirit, is the article in PBS Kids that you're referencing is actually the end pages of the book. And so all Free Spirit books have kind of letters to caregivers at the end. So this is the letter to caregivers, which is how do you now apply this? Because for me, I feel like I read all the parenting books because I have to. It's part of my job. I do a lot of reviews. But, you know, if you are in the throes of parenting, sometimes you just don't always have time. So that's why you listen to a great podcast while you're mm-hmm. doing the dishes or driving. Yep. Or for me, you're reading a book to your kids. And so, you know, maybe that's a vehicle that can help. And so, you know, one of the suggestions is, you know, just to use that phrase, I noticed. Yes. And I, I feel like that's my go-to phrase so often my kids. And I did this a lot at night. Right? When there's something about the magic of a dark bedroom and sitting on <laughs> the edge of the bed and just say, you know, I noticed today that you fed the dog and I didn't have to remind you. And I really appreciate that. And I noticed that you could have gotten really mad at your sister when she made that comment, but you didn't. Like, that's huge. And I noticed. And just make it a goal, especially if you're in a struggle time with your kids. Yeah. Like, make it a goal to find one thing each day that you know you can say to them that night that you noticed. That's a practice that I did with my own son when he was young, too. Every night I said, you know, I love it when you blank today, when you put your pajamas in the dirty clothes basket this morning, when you brushed your teeth and I only asked three times, when, right? right? Because I needed that reminder that there was good in the day and so did he. Right. And he got to go to sleep feeling loved, mm-hmm. feeling seen, you know, and it was so, so valuable. He's 19 now, I don't get to tuck him in anymore. But as long as I did, that was something that I did and it was really, really powerful and so simple. I agree. I I just feel like even though the bedtime rush can be so stressful, that like if there's that moment where they're finally in bed, where you can just end the day with Mm -hmm. one, thank you for, I noticed, I love it when you, right? You know, even if it's like, I love how excited you got about the Celtics game today. They had a great win on Sunday. (laughs) My my son's a big Celtics fan. And it just says, I noticed... I notice what you love and I, I love it too. Yeah. And, you know, or I loved watching you play, you know, basketball in the driveway today. It was really fun to watch you. And those, again, it's just that, you know, I may have told him 17 times to brush his teeth and he may have said he did. And I felt the toothbrush and it wasn't wet. Right. <laughs> and we had that conversation, but I don't want that to be the last conversation of the day, at least most of the time, right? As right. much as I can muster it, if I can flip that and it becomes a ritual, Oh, it's a beautiful one. So yeah, I love Mm -hmm. that you did that. I tried to do the same thing because I just, you know, goes into the night and says, it's almost like that Anne Shirley was began at Finn Gables fan. Like, you know, tomorrow is a new day with no mistakes in it. Yes. And it's almost like we're putting you to bed with a clean slate. 
Yes. I always hung on to that quote from Anne of Green Gables, too. Yeah. It was my favorite part of the whole thing was that tomorrow was a new day with no mistakes in it. It's so powerful. And noticing, you know, is a practice that would benefit all of us. You know, it's really practicing mindfulness. Yes. But when we talk about it in the frame of just noticing, I think it makes it more doable for us Mm -hmm. as parents, (laughs) right? Like, Practicing mindfulness sounds hard and it sounds like we really have to focus and we really have to put a lot of thought and effort into it. But really, it's just noticing things and sometimes noticing them out loud, you know, being aware of what our kids are going through, being aware of what's sort of fueling behavior sometimes, being aware of when something was really hard and they did it anyway or they accomplished it. They focused on it enough to get it done when that was super hard for them, right? Right. And sometimes that feels really not genuine for parents. Like we're celebrating, you know, when our kid brought home his lunchbox for the first time in the week, where a typical family wouldn't find that celebratory, right? But when you are noticing, it doesn't feel so sort of out of scale of what's happening because you're just noticing. I absolutely agree. I noticed for me is a really magic phrase and it is both in parenting and in teaching because it can also work when there's something you want to point out without any shame or guilt Mm -hmm. or I can't believe it. For me, sometimes I'll just say, oh, you know, I noticed that there's some shoes in the front hallway, right? And it gives them a chance to scamper and put them away without judgment. Like get over here and put your shoes away. I've asked you six times. Because it's not malicious that <laughs> shoes are everywhere around the house. Exactly. It just gives an opportunity or like, you know, I noticed that you haven't talked much about so-and-so, a friend, right? I may say that in the car and it gives an opportunity if something's happening for them to talk about it. Or, you know, as I noticed, you looked a little sad and you came home from school. I mean, I do this as a teacher all the time. You know, I'll pull them after class and say, you know, I noticed it. I haven't heard your voice much in the last couple of days. I just wanted to check in. It doesn't mean they have to say anything, but it says to them, you're seen. And I just feel like as humans and, you know, even our two-year-old tantruming, they're just, they're, they're little humans mm-hmm. and it feels really good to be seen. It really feels really good yes. if somebody's noticing us. <laughs> yes. And noticing our authentic self, who we really are, mm-hmm. because I think that's very, very tough for kids who are neurodivergent, they are so worried about and working so hard on fitting in that they're not really presenting their authentic true self to the world. And when we notice, you know, as parents, when we're doing that extra work and we're really paying close attention and we notice who they really are, what's really going on for them, it's magical for a kid. And to think about it as a parent, it feels really good as an adult too, right? When somebody really sees us and maybe appreciates something that we've said or done or just appreciates having us around, like that feels really great. And it feels really great for our kids too. Yeah. You know, noticing like the shoes are in the middle of the hallway is using declarative language, right? And Mm -hmm. that really helps with building skills for our kids who are often developmentally delayed. Yeah. You know, we're building problem-solving skills. We're building organizational skills because now we've asked them to think about 
where would the right home for my shoes be? Where are they supposed to live? You know, and so we're giving them help without any of that judgment. Like you said, Mm -hmm. we're leaving the judgment out of it. It's what I consider the scaffolding part of support. You know, we're still helping, but we're not leading. We're letting them figure it out. Yeah, it's like when you say, right, it's a big project. What's one thing you want to start with right now? It's like you pick the one thing, one Mm -hmm. small thing, but you let them pick it, right? Like this whole room is a mess. What's one thing, you know, that you want to do first? Maybe it's pick up the socks, right? And you just, you just start there because otherwise it's too big and overwhelming. And, you know, and as the kids get older, you know, one advantage I think of this kind of digital texting world is it's a great opportunity for your tween and teen to send that quiet little message, right? To send them a little text, a little note on the bathroom mirror that says the same thing. Like, you know, I love it when, you know, I noticed. And I'll say this as somebody who taught middle school for many years. I've taught just about every grade, but I did middle for the most. And I know that parents think that their kids hate them when they're in middle school and they don't. (laughs) They are desperate for the love. And so sometimes I would see that their mom had like, or dad had written them like a little note in their lunchbox and they may not show anybody else, but I'd see their smile, right? It was like, oh, and they won't go home and tell their parents, thank you. So sometimes I would say, hey, I noticed you doing that to the parents, like keep at it. It's good for them. Because, you know, while they may not respond reciprocally to like the love you're putting out, they are desperate for it even more at that time because they're just feeling the weight of the judgment of their peers and their teachers. Mm -hmm. And it's like, if you are that safe landing spot who was letting them know that I just, you know, I love watching you, you know, make your bracket for March Madness. Like, you know, if your kid's just super into something, just let them know whatever their interest is, you think it's cool. Yeah. Right? Whatever that thing is that is making them excited, you think it's cool too. Yeah. Yeah. Really try to relate. I think kids in middle school feel so unrelatable <laughs> and they, they still really need our help. Ugh. And I think even want our help, but they don't want to. They want to be independent. They don't want to need their parents. And so that push and pull is so difficult. And I love just giving them reminders that we're thinking about them, that we love them, even when we wouldn't necessarily think to do it. You know, Mm -hmm. I would have been the parent who would worry, oh, their peers are going to make fun of them if they see this note in their lunchbox. Because I am an anxious person. I had social anxiety, still have social anxiety, but it was really hard in school, right? And so I was always projecting that kind of thing, which was my own stuff, (laughs) but onto my kids and I would worry about it. And I love that you're saying nobody else has to see it. Like kids aren't really paying attention to that. And your child isn't going to go, look, my mommy left me a note in my lunchbox today, right? Exactly. They'll keep it to themselves. They'll be stealthy about it. That's so awesome. If you have a neurodivergent child struggling to focus on daily to-dos and routines, check out June. June, spelled J-O-O-N, is an app aimed at helping kids with ADHD develop their executive functioning and ability to focus. With June, your children play an engaging video game and are motivated to do assigned and approved daily tasks and routines in real life in order to level up. With a near five-star rating on the App Store and recommendations from top child therapists and parenting experts, June is something worth checking out if you have a neurodivergent child. 
If you think June can help your family, go to juneapp.io slash parenting ADHD. That's June spelled J-O-O-N app.io slash parenting ADHD to learn more. Sign up and try June for free today. So we've talked about three, I believe, steps of how to help kids feel loved and lovable, correct with love, letting them know that we love them in all different sorts of places and states and emotions, noticing their efforts, writing love notes you were just talking about. And what's the fourth and final piece of that? A lot of it is just, and I think this is such a a wonderful reminder to parents when we're feeling at the end of our rope. But it is true that actually just being there for our kids Mm -hmm. is one of the most valuable things we can do. And, you know, I will say one of the most hopeful pieces of research I've ever found. So I have probably included this in eight of my one to 200 articles I've written the last decade. It comes from Harvard Center for the Developing Child. And they studied kids and resilience, kids who had been through traumatic events and who had emerged Okay. And what they discovered Mm -hmm. was that the single most common factor for children who develop resilience is at least one stable and committed relationship with a supportive parent, caregiver, or other adult. It's like that one stable person. It doesn't say one perfect person. No. It doesn't say one, you know, brilliantly trained, you know, mom who's read a thousand books. No, it's just stable, committed relationship. And so it's that kind of just being there. And obviously, you know, we're working on ourselves through this, but, you know, so much of it is just saying, okay, I'm going to get down on, you know, at my kids at eye level, or I'm going to, you know, make an effort to just remind them, even though they think it's hokey now that they're 13, I love you all the time because they still crave it. Even when they roll their eyes, I may think one of my favorite Phrases from parenting is from Toni Morrison, who was talking to Oprah Winfrey once. And she said, you know, I used to think that part of being a good mother was, you know, making sure my kids were, you know, their their clothes were clean and their face were washed. But then I realized what they really needed was for my face to light up when they walked in the room. Mm -hmm. And so she said, that's the question. Does your face light up when your child walks the room? And then she added, which I love, and not just your child, any child. And so I think about that a lot with my kids, like on pickup, right? That's a piece of actionable parenting strategy for me Yeah, where I'm going to the pickup line and I've had a busy day, but my kids are looking for my car. I can see them and I make sure like my eyes get wide and I smile and wave and like, they're looking for me. And then I start to wave my daughter who's, you know, a tween now. She's like, I'm not going to wave back. My son, of course, (laughs) is waving wildly. (laughs) Mm-hmm. And, but either way, they know I'm excited to see them when they get in the car, you know, and when they wake up in the morning, I try to be able to say, good morning. It's great to see you again. That may not be reciprocated, but they're looking for their person mm-hmm. and everybody should have somebody whose face lights up when they see them, you know, but then when she added not just you, but other people's kids, and this is where I think, you know, we do such a great model for when we're at the playground or with their friends, if there's a kid who comes up who our child may not be sure how to interact with, you know, they may be presenting with different behaviors or reactions that we can model treating any child with that kind of bright face because we are showing to them 
that we don't reserve our care just for somebody who is acting in a socially appropriate way. And I think that as a parent, as a teacher, like that's one of the best modeling things I can do for kids is to say, I am delighted by everyone who comes up, you know, whether they're stimming or they're raising their hand, you know, in a perfectly prescribed manner, I'm still excited for their participation. Yeah. And I'm hearing a lot of connection and the importance and the value of connection within this that, you know, the Harvard study where you need one committed adult. Committed, stable adult, yeah. Right. You need connection with that adult. That mm-hmm. That's the magic, I think, behind that is that connection regulates our bodies yes. and our nervous system. It calms us. It makes us be able to feel confident and competent. It provides, you know, this open door to feeling good about ourselves mm-hmm. And to being able to do good, you know, we talk a lot about when we feel good, we do good. And when we don't feel good, it's really hard to do good. And that goes for kids and adults alike. And when we feel connection and we get all the benefits of connection, we're feeling good. Mm -hmm. We're able to do good. And it's, it's so valuable and important you know, when you were talking about that study, I just kept thinking, it's that connection, that relationship. You know, we work a lot with families on the relationship because that is so very important. You know, when you're battling over homework every night, you get Mm. to spend a few hours every night with your kid and homework is so hard for them. It takes them forever and you feel like they need to do it, right? Because that's the pressure you're receiving as a parent. And you know, you have to be able to step back and say, okay, my relationship with my kid is the most important. Yeah. And that's really what they need so much more than practicing their long division on 30 problems, right? Honestly, even being explicit about it and saying, you know, yeah, I love you all the time. I love you too much to fight with you about your homework right now. Yes. <laughs> that, you know, I know that this is frustrating, but you need to know, it, it, to even say that, I love you too much too. And like, let's go take a walk, take a deep breath. And then, you know, you can choose whether you come back to this or not. And if this is such a source of pain, knowing that your relationship is so vital, you've got to take that step back sometimes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And by doing so, again, you're, you're showing your kid that you see them. You see that it's a struggle. You want them to have a better experience, right? I mean, I don't want to fight with my kid all evening about homework. I don't want homework to be so sort of damaging really to them. You know, some of our kids have significant learning challenges and it's so super hard. And it was something I learned, you know, in elementary school, I would just start writing a note on the top of homework papers. And I would say, okay, we worked on this for the 30 minutes that you expect your students to work on homework. Mm -hmm. And then we, you know, we ended and we focused on something else or family time or whatever. And, you know, there were some days where I would send a note in and say, it just wasn't a good day. Mm -hmm. We just couldn't do any homework. And, you know, you have to know your child. My child was learning he just struggled with the output and showing yeah. that he was learning in the ways he was expected to. 
And so for me, that was an easy choice to make because his emotional and mental health mattered more to me than showing that he knew the math for the 30th time, right, on the piece of paper. Right. And not only that, if you find that you're in the mode where the kids are, are fighting or crying, their executive function skills are shut down. Yes. You know, like once you go into fight or flight mode, your instinctive brain takes over. Yep. And so for kids who struggle with executive function anyway, they're not going to be able to solve that problem, even if they can, if they're in fight or flight mode. Yep. Because that's the part of the brain that is now flooded the executive function. So until they've calmed down, mm-hmm. until you've done those connecting things, there will be no more math that is happening. No matter how much you sit at the table and say, dang it, you are going to finish this problem, their capacity to do it, you know, even if it's something they know, they may not be able to do it because they're in fight or flight mode. Yeah. They have no access. And that's when they need us to help co-regulate their emotions and be like, you know, like, we're going to snuggle with the dog now. (laughs) You're going to go do something, you know, and then maybe when they're, you know, their executive function comes back online, right? When their their nervous system has calmed, they might take another look at it or they may not, but it escalates because it like legitimately when that happens, their brain cannot do it. Yeah. I talk to parents a lot about the fact that when your emotional brain or your survival brain is flooded, yeah. it has taken over and it's blocking the thinking brain. There's no access. It's offline. It's offline for a while. It needs a reboot. It's completely, <laughs> yes, unattainable. And for me, raising a kid with ADHD and on the spectrum, that was one of the most pivotal parenting moments for me was understanding that he couldn't process, he couldn't think cognitively. He couldn't rationalize because I'm a type A super rationalizer. So every time something was wrong, what was I doing? Well, I was just trying to talk him through it and talk him out of it, right? And it (laughs) never, ever, ever worked. And that was why. No matter how good your advice was, Penny, right? No matter how beautiful I was trying to guide that conversation, never worked. And I couldn't understand it, right? Because in my mind... It just made sense, but he wasn't able to hear me and process what I was saying and rationalize and take action on that because he was already in that fight or flight or freeze mode. And that's really, really powerful, powerful information for parents to have of any kids, neurotypical or not, you know, it's really important to understand the biology behind the behavior. That was actually very much in my mind when I wrote the second book, which is You Have Feelings All the Time, because it's really just about an emotional vocabulary. And I really believe that the sooner we equip kids with the language to say how they're feeling, and there's just such good research on this, Mm -hmm. otherwise they feel like they are the emotion, right? It just takes them over And they're just a passenger on the anger ship or the frustration ship. Yes. And so the more they learn about the biology, you know, even five-year-olds, I'll pull out the glitter jar and say, when you're really, really mad, you you shake it up. This is what your brain can look like. And when you take deep breaths and calm it down, then the water is clear and you can make, you know, you can choose what to do. But then it's just this sense for them that, you know, otherwise they feel out of control. They can't name it. They don't know why. And the more... We put them back in the driver's seat of, you know, even just being able to name their emotions to just know what's happening during Mm -hmm. a fight or flight and freeze response, right? I give tons of workshops on this for kids of this is is what it looks like in your brain and your body. Everybody has this. Everybody's scared. Everybody gets frustrated. You know, it is really normal for your brain 
to be flooded with this feeling and it doesn't last. No emotion lasts forever. Yeah. You know, if you're in an acute kind of anxiety spiral, there are things you can do to help. Like what's your strategy box here for bringing that down? Yeah, there's so many regulation strategies. There are, but part of what you want to do is just normalize it first. Like everybody goes through this Mm -hmm. and, you know, you're not weird for suddenly freezing up. I freeze up sometimes. Your dad freezes up sometimes. Your teacher does too. Yeah. We've just found some different strategies and we can help you too. Yeah. One of the best things we can do for our kids is to be imperfect in front of them. Absolutely. To be human in front of them. Mm -hmm. It gives them permission. Absolutely. Right. And it helps them to know that sometimes we all have a struggle. Sometimes we all trip up. Sometimes we all get super angry. Right. Or super sad. And and it's okay. Normalizing those feelings, I think, is something our culture really needs to work on. Oh, 100%. <laughs> we need to work on anger is normal and it's okay. Mm-hmm. It's what you do with it that matters. There are no good or bad emotions, mm-hmm. right? That's yep. all part of what makes us human. Yeah. And that's something they'll say to even young kids, like, what if you were never, ever scared? You know, then what would happen if you, like a train were coming towards you and if you weren't scared, you wouldn't run out of the way. Like, like all of these emotions give us data. They all give us information yeah. that can be helpful to us. And so, you know, just again, normalizing and saying there are no good or bad emotions. It is, it's what you do with it. And there's, you know, when you're feeling mad, that's fine. What can we do with it now? What are some options for you when you feel this way? Yeah. Yeah. And I love you when you're mad. Yes. Oh, I had to just share. I was at a school recently and I knew the teacher and she was sitting in the back with an autistic boy because, you know, having a guest speaker, like that's a change in routine. Like that's not, mm-hmm. that's not always easy. So yep. she was sitting in the back with him and halfway through I was reading the book, I Love You All the Time. And these are second graders. And he turned to her and he said, you love me all the time. Even when I'm having bad days, this book is just like you. Aww. And I thought, <gasps> you know, and she came up and she was, you know, crying. She's like, can I get a copy of this book to give to him? So, you know, she could write in it you know, she wanted him to feel that. And I thought, you know, she's been working with this kid so patiently and so beautifully for all these months. And like, it gave him the words that moment. And I thought, yeah, that's why I wrote this book <laughs> right there. That gave me goosies all the way to my toes. That's so beautiful. And every kid deserves that. Yeah. Every single kid deserves to be seen and understood and loved no matter what. Mm-hmm. We, of course, have already come to the end of our time together. So fun to talk to you, Penny. Yeah, both of us could talk about this stuff for ages. And we'll have to do a follow-up and have you back later on. But for everyone listening, definitely check out Deborah's book and website and social media. We're going to link everything up for you in the show notes, which are found at parentingadhdandautism.com slash 173 for episode 173. And I thank everyone for listening. I am very appreciative to you, Deborah, for sharing some of your time and wisdom with us as well. And with that, I'll see everyone next week. Thanks for joining me on the Parenting ADHD podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and share. And don't forget to check out my online courses, Parent Coaching, and Mama Retreats at parentingadhdandautism.com.